Hi there, Rachel here. If you're listening to this episode in May of 2024, I have some big news. After selling out during the holiday season, my Flex of Gold journal is available for pre-order right now and will be shipping to your home by the end of June. To celebrate, we're running an amazing pre-order sale for Mother's Day. Purchase the journal before May 13th and you'll get $10 off every journal. This is our best price of the year, even better than Black Friday, so it's the perfect time to stock up for gifts for family and friends. This three-year journal helps mothers to notice, savor, and write down the fleeting golden moments that they experience with their children each day. So go to 3in30podcast.com slash flexofgold to reserve your copy, and you'll also see our brand new cover colors, as well as our new cover option, which is a wipeable vegan leather. So again, go to 3in30podcast.com slash flexofgold to pre-order your journal, and from now until Mother's Day 2024, they'll be marked down by $10 each. I can't wait for you to experience the magic of this beautiful gratitude journal for mothers. Happy Monday, my friends. I am so excited today to be announcing my final Declutter Your Motherhood workshops for 2019. I thought about traveling to a few different locations around the U.S. to teach these, but I decided that it's just too much with my young family, so I will be teaching just one more day of in-person workshops this year. But I'll also be hosting two live online workshops in October for those of you who live too far away to travel to an in-person event. I'll be telling you all about the online events in next Monday's episode, so stay tuned for that. But today I want to focus on my last in-person event for 2019, which will take place on Saturday, October 12th at Elevate Event Center in Pleasant Grove, Utah. And these workshops on the 12th are extra special for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm offering two different sessions that day to accommodate busy mom schedules. So the morning session will be from 9 a.m. until 2 p.m. and the evening session will be from 4 p.m. until 9 p.m. You don't have to attend both. You just choose one that fits the best with your family schedule. And the second really fun and unique thing about the workshops on the 12th is that they are taking place on the actual second birthday of 3 and 30 podcast, like to the day. And when I realized that, I knew that we had to celebrate. So this Declutter Your Motherhood workshop will also be a 3 and 30 birthday party. You'll get the full workshop content, but you'll also get cake, gifts, and best of all, the opportunity to meet and mingle with many of the former guests of 3 and 30. I've invited all 100 of them to attend one of the sessions. And though many of them live out of state, so they won't be able to attend, I've been thrilled by the affirmative RSVPs that are rolling in. I'm so excited that you'll get to meet many of the women who you've heard and learned from on the show. It's going to be such a special day, and I want you to be a part of it. Early bird pricing is going on for the next two weeks only. So if you want $30 off your ticket, be sure to go to 3in30podcast.com forward slash workshops today and get your ticket. Last time I held an event in Utah, the tickets sold out in less than a week. I truly want to hug you in person and celebrate 3 and 30 and all of the growth that we've all made with you. So I hope that you can join us on Saturday, October 12th. And now on to the show. This is episode 97, how to let go of hard stuff from your past. Welcome to 3 and 30, a podcast for moms who want to create more meaning in motherhood. Each 30-minute episode will feature three doable takeaways for you to try at home with your family this week. I'm your host, Rachel Nielsen. Thank you so much for being here. 
If you've listened to my podcast for very long, you know that I'm a huge fan of therapy. Counseling has helped me change my perspectives about myself, the world, my experiences. It's not an exaggeration to say that it has fundamentally changed who I am. And in today's episode, you're going to hear me dive deep into some of my personal epiphanies that I've had while in counseling. It's my hope that you might relate to some of my story and gain some insight into yourself as well. This episode originally aired on Monica Packer's podcast, which is called About Progress in March 2018. I was the guest and Monica interviewed me about my experience growing up with a mother who battled breast cancer for 13 years and what that was like for me as a naturally very sensitive, emotional, worry-prone child and how that affected me up into adulthood. I'm so grateful that Monica gave me permission to air this excerpt from her show Because some of what I share here, particularly when I talk about my realization that I have a savior complex, has been profoundly helpful in my journey to find happy, healthy, emotionally mature ways of relating to others and the world. And even though it takes us a bit of time to get there, there are three takeaways at the end of this conversation about how you can dig into your past, understand yourself better, and heal from any lingering heartaches that you might have from your childhood. Even if you had a really beautiful childhood like I did, sometimes there's still just a whole lot of stuff that you need to figure out and examine. So we'll dive right into the interview. Again, this is an excerpt from About Progress with Monica Packer, where I was so privileged to be a guest. We have been meaning to have you on my show for quite some time. Um, Well before you even officially launched your podcast, we wanted you here to talk about what it's like to deal with trauma as a child, which you dealt with, and um, how to, as an adult, not move on, because I don't think that's ever part of the equation here when you have a tragedy and some trauma in your life at a, at a young age, but how to move forward. And, and and so how about you actually start by telling us a little bit about what that was for you, What's what was in your childhood that... That was so difficult. So um, when I was six years old, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she was only 35, which is really young. Mm -hmm. And um, my sister was eight. I was six. And my little sister was three. And so my mom had these three little girls. She was a young mother. And she got this diagnosis. And actually, my first memory of my entire life is my mom telling us that she had cancer and I'm sure that I probably have um I probably have other memories but that that just stands out to me as my first memory because Mm -hmm. it was so huge you know like I just remember them my mom and dad sitting on the bed and my mom being in tears which I wasn't really used to seeing Mm -hmm. and them telling us this news that she um was very sick and that she was gonna have to be in the hospital And she actually had a bone marrow transplant shortly after that and was in the hospital for three months. Wow. So, so as these young, young girls, we were confronted with, um, you know, not having our mom there and really worrying for her health and well being. And she was amazing, um, at, you know, really wanting us to feel safe and making sure that like she recorded all of our favorite storybooks for us on cassette tapes so that we could listen to those at night. But I just think that shows that she was actively thinking about what can I do for my girls to help Mm -hmm. them through this? 
so she was very sick and chemo and I remember um you know her throwing up and just and it's so hard to watch as a young girl your mom suffering like that but it didn't just end there so she went on to battle breast cancer for 13 years and she went in and out of remission over and over during that time and then she passed away when I was 19. Mm. Just a lot of my childhood was spent worrying about my mom and watching my mom be sick. So trauma, yes, but I also feel like in some ways I've never wanted to classify it as that because I had a really wonderful childhood. Like I had loving, wonderful parents, the best parents a kid could ever ask for. It was tough to see her so sick, but I do have so many beautiful memories too from my childhood. You know, Rachel, it seems like even though you're saying you you didn't have the sad, depressing childhood, it still shows that you were dealing with trauma. The fact that your first memory is of them telling you about the cancer. It's almost like this clock was reset in your psyche, you know, deep. And you know, I think so many of our childhoods are like that, if not all. Obviously, all of us are affected by our childhood, but there are these deep-seated things that maybe they're not, quote-unquote, what people would think as trauma, but they can be in, in how they right. weigh on us. So what do you think that was for you? What was what was this thing that affected you deep down? I mean, you, you did touch on that a little bit about just seeing her sick and worrying about her. Does it, does it extend... Um, deeper into that or other things as well? Yeah, and I think a lot of that didn't really surface for me until I was older. Um, Mm -hmm. I was an intense perfectionist, and Mm -hmm. um, I just always sort of attributed that to my personality, which I think is true, um, that I was born naturally to want to please, to want to obey and be good at things. And I'm naturally really sensitive and emotional, I think. So maybe I internalized things differently that were going on with my mom, like worried in different ways than even my sisters who were going through the same experience. But I grew up, you know, in my teen years, massive overachiever, top of my class, trying to do everything And in college, I developed an eating disorder, um, really just striving, striving, striving for that perfection. And it was actually after I became a mother that um, things started to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Um, With the eating disorder, when my mom was dying is when it was really the worst, Mm -hmm. the summer The summer that my mom was, we knew her diagnosis was terminal at that point. It was the summer after my freshman year of college. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, I was her caregiver during the day and, um, every morning I would get up early and I would just run. And at first that sounds like a healthy way to cope, you know, but it turned into like, five miles wasn't enough, six, seven, eight, nine miles, you know, just really excessive. And it was me trying to run this pain away, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and starve this pain away. And like everything in my life felt out of control, but that number on the scale I could control and, you know, I just getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And then 
later when I went through infertility, but for adopting my son, I really went to the other extreme where I started binge eating mm-hmm. and I would come home from these fertility appointments and I like was just searching for comfort somewhere, fulfillment somewhere. And I was just like, give me the brownies, a whole pan, you know, just mm-hmm. like I have to try to fill this ache. But it's interesting mm-hmm. that it was always the same. Um, it was the same eating disorder, even yes. though it manifested in dramatically different ways. Mm-hmm. It was always trying to trying to numb out this pain from my mom's passing or from mm. this infertility. And um, then my son was born and we adopted him. And all of a sudden I was just like, I need serious help. I don't know if it was becoming a mother myself. It just brought up so many of my fears and insecurities. At that point, I finally went to counseling. I did not go into it thinking that this really had anything to do with my mother. Yeah. Like I just thought I have these I have an eating disorder. I have to get this sorted out and we're going to we're going to address eating behaviors. And then I got into counseling and that's when the counselor really started digging and stuff started coming up and I realized, "Oh, this is much deeper than you know, just I think a lot of people think that they're issues start you hear people talk about perfectionism or even eating disorders and they say like it all started in high school or it all started in college and but really I think so often it started long before that definitely I realized that once I started going to counseling wow so was that so when you first started realizing that kind of peeling back these layers was that like taking off a scab? I mean, was it, was it super painful? I imagine, but, or was it one of those things where the more you uncovered, the more like aha moments and the more strength and growth that you had, what was that process like? Well, both for sure. You Mm -hmm. know, um, I feel like, yeah, definitely peeling off a scab, but also just like, almost like clearing an infection. You like, you have to get it out, you know, and it's not pleasant, And you don't want, like, I didn't want to dig a lot of this stuff up, but once it's, once it started coming up, I could heal, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I had a count, so I had several different counselors over the years and I really feel like I've learned different things from each of them and taken really valuable things from each of them. But, um, I had one counselor who was really, um, like a straightforward kind of straight talking red personality if you Uh know the the color code kind of not what you would expect for a counselor like Uh you would expect someone who'd be all fuzzy and warm and she was not that way and so in that initial intake appointment she had me describe they, they always have you describe your story and your background and everything and so I described all this about my mom being sick and everything and blah blah you know the whole story and then she said oh I know what your problem is. You have a savior complex. And I was like, excuse me? Like, it was just so, and she's like, you have a savior complex. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, what does that mean? And she said, you wanted to save your mother. You thought that if you were perfect enough, then 
you know, maybe you could save her. And my initial response was like, no way, you know, and also how dare you? Like I was kind of just stung and hurt. And she said, you know, your mom was the victim and you were the one who you wanted to be the savior and, and save her. And I was like, my mom was not a victim, which by the way, she wasn't. She never played that card. She yes. never, okay, so you know, mm-hmm. and so I was really defensive. I'm like, no, you don't. She's like, no, no, I'm not saying that your mom played the victim. I'm saying mm-hmm. that in, in these circumstances, this was the, these were the roles that life cast you in. Yes. Your mom had a terminal illness. Therefore she was cast in the role of the victim, like regardless of how she lived it, that, you know, that was her role. And you un- subconsciously, it's not like you really believed that you could save her by being perfect, but subconsciously you wanted to do everything in your power to make her as happy as possible, to cause as few waves as possible in your family, because she was already in so much pain that you ne- you didn't want to do anything to cause any more pain to e- either of your parents. And, you know, subconsciously you just were thinking like, maybe, maybe I can make this better if I work hard enough, if I get rid of my flaws, if I make mom happy, like things can be better, you know, and this was all deeply subconscious. And initially I'm like, this woman does not know what she's talking about. I don't think I like her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just don't. And then... I went home and thought about it and I'm like, I think I have a savior complex. <laughs> like yeah. I think it, I think it fits. And so it really was hard to look at myself and see that, but I could see that it was true that mm-hmm. I had spent my whole life trying to appear to have it all together and to rush in and be the one who could help in any situation with my mom or even with others and to never be the one who needed helping because I, you know, wanted to be the hero basically. Mm -hmm. And, um, in the end I was very grateful for her being so straightforward, but it wasn't, it wasn't fun to hear at the time, but it started to help me heal and to see these patterns in myself and to recognize them in relationships that I had with other people and to see, okay, I need to change. I need to let go of some of this and um, it's going to free me and it's going to heal me from this perfectionism that I've spent my whole life grappling with and my eating issues and everything else. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a big route for you. And, you know, I'm thinking though, even for people who might not have had um, a mom suffer with cancer like this, they could still have situations in their childhood that would uh, lead to them being in the same position as you, someone who's trying to live this perfect life. I think it's important for people to think about who might be struggling with this impossible thing to uphold of being a perfectionist is let's get to the root. Let's figure out what this might be. And oftentimes it is in your childhood. So mm-hmm. what else did you discover with therapy as things that were contributing to this this impossible thing that you were trying to achieve of being the savior or a perfectionist? I think that um, because I had such amazing parents, which I really did mm-hmm. and do, my father's still living, yes. um, I really admired and wanted to emulate them. And so 
that can contribute to the perfectionism as well. I think one of the num- one of the number one things that people say about my mom is, you know, she was sick for so long and she never complained. And now that I'm an adult, I'm like, I sure hope she complained. Yeah. Like I sure <laughs> like I I sure hope that she had at least a few trusted people that she could complain and cry to because mm. she went through hell. You know, I'm like the thought of her not having anyone or any outlet to like that kills me. So Mm -hmm. I'm but I think that hearing that all growing up, I'm like, well, if mom never complained about any of her pain, then how can I possibly, you know, have any right to feel anything other than happy and grateful all the time? And so that can really um, affect, I think, you emotionally when you're not willing to accept those more negative behavior, those more negative emotions that are just part of life. So there's that piece of it. I also think that my dad, who I adore, um, he was, is a worker. Like he Mm. just, (laughs) man, like, he just gets stuff done and is, (laughs) and never, never seems to really, tire. And so that was my other role model was Mm -hmm. this man who was like Superman, who took care of my mom, took care of the three of us, worked like he was a attorney and just worked, worked, worked um, so many hours per week. And I'm just like, how does he do it all? And even though he always said to me, like, something has to go and it can't be your mental health and you need to go to bed, you need to get more sleep, all those things. Um, I He wasn't doing those things. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I'm like, I want to be like dad and be able to work that hard and never get tired. And so both of my amazing parents had these traits I wanted to emulate that maybe weren't totally natural to me. And so that kind of set me up for some struggles when I got older, if that makes sense. Somewhere along the line, I think a lot of people experience this as a teenager, but it sounds like you and I didn't figure this out until later on in adulthood, that our parents are not perfect. And and at first that that knowledge can be a little shattering. Um, Or it can be something (laughs) you might find yourself being resentful of or angry towards or sad about. But I think in time, having that knowledge is a huge gift because it helps us see them for who they truly are with compassion and grace. And I think in terms of in turn, it helps us see ourselves that way because I am sure my children are going to need therapy because of me, (laughs) you know? And at first I was like, I hope my, I don't ruin my kids. The truth is, is we're all imperfect and all of our kids are probably going to need therapy at some point. Acknowledging the, the humanness of everyone around us is a big gift, including of ourselves, most importantly. Well, and I also think that's kind of a joke when people say, like, my kids are going to need therapy because of me. But as if, you know, therapy is a really bad thing. But mm-hmm. I've learned that therapy is a really good thing and a really healing thing. And it's been a huge blessing to me. And I'm like, yes. I encourage everybody to go to do a little therapy in their life, you know, so to Definitely. work through some of this stuff. You yeah. know, so while we've been talking, I feel like a lot of what you've said applies to someone in my life. I was actually raised by um, a man who had a very significant trauma at a young age. My, my dad witnessed his brother's death at seven years old and he became 
the oldest of his family. And so much of hearing how you described how you coped with that, I think, applies to him. And and in so many ways, I mean, just the most amazing man in the in the whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, try not to get choked up about that, but what we experience in our childhood. It, it matters. That's, I mean, one of the biggest takeaways of this conversation. It does matter for better, for worse. And my, my father had wonderful parents, wonderful parents, mm. a wonderful family. And, but that absolutely changed his entire life. And it changed right. all of us, his seven children, um, too, and our children. It really, it does. So for people who, regardless of the extent of what they would define as traumatic or um, influential in their childhoods, I would like to provide them with tools that you can give us. And this is something you do in your podcast. You have um, your guests talk about three, like you say, doable takeaways, or what's the phrase you use there? Yeah, I always say doable takeaways, like basically something actionable that people can do. That was the other word. So actionable things that people can do to heal from their childhood, um, regardless of like, like, oh, but it wasn't that serious. It doesn't matter. What can they do? Right. So how about you tell us about what um, what are some of your takeaways that you would advise others to do? So these, um, I thought about this before we started and jotted some down, and these are tools that I learned in counseling. So professional counselors <laughs> had me do these things, uh-huh. but I think that they're things that anybody can do. Um, so the first one is to write letters, which Mm -hmm. sounds interesting, but, um, to write letters to the people in your life that you need to, to, to say, or to let go of those things that are burdening you or that are on your heart and, and to never send them, but Mm. unless you, unless you need to send the letters, but, but to write and to, to get those feelings out, um, and then it, it helps immensely. So, for example, my one of my counselors had me write a letter to my mom mm-hmm. expressing anger. Huh. And very specific. This is yeah, a letter like, of anger. <laughs> well, I had said, like I had alluded to um, a few times, like, well, you know, I really wish that she would have left me more, you know, anything to help me in my adulthood uh, with being a parent, but she never journaled and she never, she didn't leave a thing. And I feel Mm. like I'm really like floundering, but she was dealing with a chronic terminal illness. And so I know she couldn't deal with that, like, which is true, but I would always sort of justify away my, my feeling of being really isolated and my motherhood experience without her here. Yeah. And my counselor was like, no, we need to explore that. Like, I need you, I want you to write her a letter and express to her anger or disappointment or however you want to, you know, word it about the fact that she didn't leave anything behind, like a journal or even a letter um, giving you advice about Hmm. adulthood and motherhood. And so I have to say that it it felt almost blasphemous to write Uh that letter. Honestly, because she is like so celebrated in our family, deservedly so. I've never openly expressed any sort of negative emotion about how she didn't mother me perfectly. Yeah. Um, and so, but I wrote the 
letter and it was excruciating to write. I actually had to like take a nap after I wrote it. Like it was mm. so emotionally draining. Um, but so healing at the same time. And it's something that I've never shown anybody. It's, it's in my journal, but, um, I'm very open and I usually share most things, but that's one that was just for me. And, but I was able to get those thoughts and feelings out and express some of that. So writing a letter to someone, um, who you've lost or who's let you down or who didn't meet your needs well can be really healing, I think. So that's the first tool or takeaway. That's a great one. And I like the idea of if you know that maybe no one else will see this, it actually takes away a lot of the pressure too to make it the perfect letter either. You know, right. whether that's grammatically or otherwise, um, just get it out. <laughs> that yes. seems so powerful and hard too. And- yeah, and to actually address them is different than like writing in a journal in person about like this huh. experience was hard because it's much more personal to say direct it to them and say you did you did this or you reacted this way and I felt this. Um but it's it was really healing for me. So That's try it out, tip. write write a letter. Okay, what about um, two? What's number two? The second one is to um go back to, to think back to your childhood and think about those things that you loved as a child that really like nurtured you, um, and to, and to do them again. So we kind of, we kind of lose those things as Uh we grow up, stop doing a lot of them because maybe they're not practical or I don't know why we just do, but um, one of my climbing trees. So that's kind of hard. I don't know if I even could. Well, don't do that right now because you're very (laughs) pregnant. I can't right now. But go ahead. You have an example. But you should. Like when (laughs) when you are fit again, you should climb a tree. I'm totally serious because my counselor told me to do And she's like, (laughs) I'm like, she's like, what were you like as a child? And I was like, oh, I was like this sensitive child. I loved animals. And she was like, do you have an animal now? And I'm like, no, that would be inconvenient convenient and I'd have to clean up after the animal and like practical Rachel kicks in, you know? Uh-huh. And she's like, well, maybe you need to spend more time with animals. <laughs> it just sounds so like kind of hoo hoo, like warm and fuzzy, you know, you kind uh-huh. of have to get over that with counseling. But, um, I, I still don't have an animal, but like eventually we will probably get a dog at some point. But another thing I loved was swings. Um, yeah. when I was a child, when your kids are at the playground, like hop on the swings and swing um just like anything that you loved like I love to write and I still write uh but just to kind of tap back into that part of you that maybe you squashed down or you let go of that you can kind of bring back to kind of find that whole part of you that before things started to hurt so much I don't I, again, that sounds really warm and fuzzy, but no, I think it's how- beautiful. And it sounds it, it yeah. sounds something that we can we can figure out quickly too. For sure. And what's number and three? And then the, the third one is probably the most warm and fuzzy of all. Okay, um, I'm but excited. I had a, <laughs> I had a counselor who actually the this is not by the way the straight shooter counselor because she would probably laugh at this, but yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> But I love that I've had counselors with totally different personalities and like I've I've really gained something from all of them. Uh But um, I had a counselor who encouraged me to like envision myself as a child 
And um, she would actually make me close my eyes and like think about what I was like as a child. And I would try so hard not to laugh during the whole thing. Uh But um, so to kind of remember what it was like to be a child, what it was like to feel that fear or worry or whatever it was that you felt um, to kind of go there, you know, and picture yourself as this innocent child that you were and with the glasses or the whatever, you know, yes, the gap. Teeth. Um, <laughs> yes. And just to keep that picture in your mind to give you. So it gives you some grace when you start to, you know, fall back into certain behaviors or certain fears start to come up for you. And you're tempted as an as a rational adult to be like, get it together. Why are you acting this way? It's just imagine that child and think, okay, she's just hurting and needs to be comforted right now. You know, I feel ridiculous saying this stuff out loud, but <laughs> it's, true. <laughs> it is true. And it's really helped me. Oh, so I can see how so I think that it's... is so effective. Get, like you said, it gives you, it makes you um, act more kindly to yourself. It gives yourself compassion. Yes. It also gives you um, practical ways to help comfort and work your way through it, just as you would help your own child or a loved child in your life. Yes, your own child being that scared and how you would comfort them, you know, and it's Definitely. like treat, treat yourself with similar grace. So, Rachel, can you repeat those? three things for us before we say goodbye. Yes. So write a letter to the person that you need to from your childhood Um, to go back to what you used to love as a child, the activities and things that you used to love and start doing those again. And three, envision yourself as a child and give yourself the grace and comfort and protection that you would a child in your life. Wonderful. Thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk to me. I really want to thank you for listening to that conversation where I reveal so much of my heart. I'm so grateful to Monica for letting me re-air it here. She's become a dear friend to me these past several years, and you can find her podcast at About Progress, and I will include a link in the show notes. Before I end, I want to talk a little bit more about savior complexes, and I want to ask you to look into your heart and to see if any of this rings true for you. At one of my recent workshops, a woman approached me afterwards and she tearfully told me about the heavy emotional burden that she carries every day, wanting to be everything and do everything for her children. She rattled off a long list of all the things she feels like she needs to teach them and help them with. I gently put my hand on this mother's shoulder and said, what you are carrying is so heavy and I understand it because I've been there, but I want to remind you that you are not your children's savior. They already have a savior and it's not you. So to all of you who are listening, I just want to remind you of the same thing. You don't have to be perfect. Not for your kids, not for your parents or your family or your spouse, not even for yourself. You are not anyone's savior. And if the perfectionism or mom guilt or heaviness that you carry around with you has something to do with your childhood, even if you had amazing, wonderful parents like I did, 
please try one of the takeaways from this episode to nurture your inner child as warm and fuzzy as that may sound and to let some of that heaviness go. And one final thing, if this interview resonated with you and you want to dig deeper into who you are, as well as hear more about my personal journey with counseling, I share my whole heart and soul in my Declutter Your Motherhood workshops. This is the last week you can buy tickets for my workshop in Arizona on September 21st. And don't forget, tickets are now on sale and at early bird pricing for my workshop, my birthday celebration workshop in Utah on October 12th. I want you to be there so you can find deeper understanding of yourself and deeper joy in your life. You are doing a really good job and I hope you have a great week with your family.